regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold in-depth conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack their narrative journeys and their careers. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Pranke. Jennifer is the founder and CEO of Alectio, the first startup fully focused on data prep ops. She and her team are on a fundamental mission to help ML teams build models with less data. Prior to Alectio, Jennifer was the vice president of ML at Figure8. She also built an entire ML function from scratch at Atlassian and led multiple data science projects on the search team at Walmart Labs. She is recognized as one of the top industry experts on active learning and ML lifecycle management. She is an accomplished speaker who enjoys addressing both technical and non-technical audience. So Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. So I want to start our conversation, you know, kind of uh, discussing a little bit about your upbringing. So I believe that uh, you are French and you became interested in studying physics at quite a young age. So would you mind, you know, sharing any formative experience that shaped your academic interest during your childhood? Yeah. No, I mean, so you can certainly tell I'm French from my accent. I'm sure like, uh, it's kind of hard to hide, right? I was born in France. I actually, like, uh, my family is actually Polish originally. So, I mean, uh, I, I'm kind of, from a cultural perspective, I consider myself like semi-Polish, semi-French. And yes, so I, I actually, so my uh, early story was like, uh, as far as I can remember, I wanted to be a physicist. I mean, and actually, uh, Back in those days, it didn't sound like this would uh, ever lead me to working with data and being in the position where I'm at today. I was uh, widely inspired by the great physicists of the past. I mean, uh, and people like Marie Curie, for example, because uh, to me, it was like uh, one of the very few like uh, women physicists. And uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, my, my entire childhood was essentially like, geared towards like, uh, you know, like uh, making it and, and eventually getting a PhD in, in physics. People remember me like drawing like with a telescope, etc. So I ended up like graduating with a, a degree in uh, uh, astrophysics and particle physics. So I kind of achieved my dream. You could put it that way. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing those uh, those experiences. And you already mentioned like you know throughout your academic career, you, you pursue physics as a study. And in particular, throughout the 2000s, you did your BS in physics at Louis Pasteur University, your MS in particle nuclear physics and cosmology at Paris Source University, and later on your PhD in particle physics at uh, Sorbonne University. And uh, I believe that during your PhD, you also work as a TA at the University of the Paris. So can you you know just briefly unpack the evolution of your academic journey in France? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the city where so I lived in an uh, area of France, like uh, I mean, and I grew up like uh, in a place in France, like uh, called Alsace, which is like basically like a uh, eastern side of France, like just across the border from Germany. And so, uh, for many people, like uh, if you're gonna like uh, pursue an ambitious career, like uh, you eventually want to go study in Paris. So I, I kind of followed like the traditional path. I, you know, like uh, decided eventually that. Uh, the best physics schools and like a physics training would happen in, in Paris. So that's that's basically like the reason why I decided
decided to move, right? So that's also like when I started like uh, discovering, like starting like some, you know, like uh, opportunities to travel to the US. So basically like my PhD being in particle physics, basically when you do your, your PhD, you essentially have to work and to be associated to a, a collaboration of physicists that basically work based on the data that's being acquired by one of the large particle accelerators, right? I mean, so I'm sure everybody uh, knows CERN, for example, uh, in Europe. Back in those days, there was like a, a pretty large, well-known experiment running at uh, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Uh, known as Slack, and so uh, that's actually the place where the, the the type of physics I was interested in, which uh, which was basically like the, the study of uh, matter and antimatter. If that interests anyone here, it was happening, right? I mean, so basically, like uh, during my PhD, I spent a large amount of my time actually in the US and started realizing that you know, like that there were maybe like better like research opportunities in the US than they were in Europe back in those days. So yeah, that's basically like when my 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 first thinking of like maybe my I should do my career like abroad even started uh, occurring to me. Yeah, I see. Just very quickly, what did your PhD thesis about? Basically, so an experiment I was working on was working on something called CP violation. So basically, like those who are like somewhat familiar with uh, you know, like the birth of the universe is like when the universe got created, we had the same amount of particles and antiparticles or matter and antimatter. Right? Mm-hmm. And normally when you have a particle of matter and its equivalent antiparticle basically annihilates, right? I mean, so it means that in order for the universe to uh, survive, at some point you have to have some asymmetry where uh, the survival rate of matter is higher than the survival rate of antimatter. And so this is what is known as CP violation, essentially. And so basically, like, uh, by studying the rates, so basically, like, you do that by looking at a lot of particles and looking at a lot of antiparticles through the lens of a particle accelerator and sort of see, measure, like the probabilities of these different particles to uh, to go for a specific decay, you're actually able to measure like uh, how much energy was generated at the time of the Big Bang and basically like try to make like a, some sort of like estimation of like what happened and uh, the age of the universe is sort of like uh, something that depends on that as well. So it's, it's one of these interesting parts of physics where you study the infinitely small to understand the infinitely large, right? And so I yeah. thought that to be very exciting. And so I, I, I like, I couldn't have been happier with my, uh, my PhD thesis, like a uh, topic, like that's, that was absolutely what I wanted to do. Yeah, fascinating. And you already mentioned that you spend a significant amount of time in your PhD working at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. And actually, later on, after finishing your PhD, you moved to the US and you also did a postdoc position in, in national physics at Duke University. That's, that's actually so. This is an interesting part of my life as well. So, basically, like, so, uh, uh, like, up to this point in my life, it's like everything was going accordingly to plan, right? I mean, this is what I always wanted to do, et cetera. And so, Unfortunately for me, I graduated in 2009, right? I mean, so literally months after the beginning of the recession, right? I mean, and so uh, I really fell in love with this problem I just mentioned, right? I mean, my specialty as a physicist was like a CP violation, understanding the universe. And so uh, lots of people are like, uh, why didn't you do a PhD at CERN? It's like, they were not doing the same type of physics, right? I mean, so it's like, uh, I was very peculiar in terms of like uh, the, the, the sort of physics I wanted to work on. And so another way to study the same principles of like matter and antimatter was uh, to do neutrino physics. So neutrino is a specific type of particle that you actually don't need to generate because it's part of cosmic rays, right? I mean, so what some experiments actually focus on is instead of accelerating particles against each other to have like and cause a decay on purpose, 
they basically put like a huge tank of water under uh, under a large mountain because all the particles cannot go that far through large amounts of matter, right? So whatever cosmic rays you can basically like uh, identify if you are like pretty deep under the earth, right? I mean, you would basically know that this is a neutrino, right? And so uh, same thing like neutrino like would give you like the possibility to measure like the, this, this asymmetry, right? And so on. And so the good news was that this was sort of cheap to do compared to a large particle accelerator, right? I mean, so when I was doing my PhD, the experiment uh, that I was working on, I was called the, the Babar experiment, got stopped earlier than it was supposed to be because obviously it's a very expensive experiment, right? So I did my postdoc at Duke University on neutrino physics, right? Because those experiments were still like a running properly because uh, they hadn't run out of funding just yet, right? Yeah, I mean, basically like a, a few months after I joined, like there were like a more and more restrictions. We had like, a, basically I was working on an experiment which was supposed to be built very soon. And so uh, every month we had bad news that we had less funding than we thought. And so it, it became like increasingly, uh, you know, like difficult to like uh, come up with designs for uh, this sort of particle detectors, right? And so eventually it's like uh, became very clear that I was not going to be able to do the sort of research that I felt so passionate about. So it was kind of a heartbreaking for me that uh, yeah, I mean, so I wouldn't be where I am today if this didn't happen. So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting story. And kind of providing that reason about the lack of funding on research at that time, we moved to the industry in 2011, now working as a quantitative research scientist at Quantlock Financial in Houston, and in particular, you uh, develop and maintain fully automated microstructure models and training algorithms to assist the traders in choosing parameters or indicators to be used in a data strategy. Uh, how was this transition from um, academia to industry like for you? And what was the most exciting project that you contributed yeah. to? This was almost not a choice, right? I mean, so I was in this position where basically like uh, the research I so loved was not going to be like funded to the extent where I felt would have been necessary to do like a decent amount of like uh, discoveries, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, so it's like uh, actually a lot of people in my situation started doing like the, the jump toward the industry. And so something that's very important to realize is that uh, even though I was trained as a physicist, right? I mean, as we discussed about like those uh, particle accelerators, what happens in a particle accelerator is that you cause uh, a specific like particle to like collide with another one, something happens. And it's all about data collection, right? I mean, so it's basically like what you try to do is like collect what happened, what kind of other particles appeared as the effect of, of, of this decay, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, what a particle physicist does all day is basically like data collection, data analysis, building models to try to predict the direction, the energy of those particles, and basically like uh, build statistical models, right? It was pretty natural back in those days to recycle your skills as a physicist by going into the industry back then typically in finance right mm -hmm. now i was never excited about finance back in those days like your typical like data science job right i mean something something that uh, you know like uh, people would work out like for on a search engine at google or like uh, in e-commerce or whatever what was not even really a thing right i mean so of course you had a couple of people uh, or statisticians helping those companies like with their their models but like the, the traditional data scientist job wasn't something that people knew about, right? I mean, so I basically did what I had to do for, you know, like the sake of like uh, providing to my family, right? And then basically like uh, making sure that, you know, like uh, I could make a living on my own and uh, eventually like have a career, even though that was not the career that I wanted, right? And so, um, I mean, 
to be completely honest, and this is actually kind of important for your viewers, right? Uh, it's like a, sometimes like, a, you know, like you big decisions that don't seem anything to make sense might seem like heartbreaking to you or whatever. I, I really didn't like that job so much, right? Now the lucky, the lucky part is like I learned new skills. I learned how to apply, uh, you know, like my skills, like industrial context, which was nice, right? And so eventually after a couple of years, like basically, I think I was like basically year two, there was an opportunity for me to start working on an NLP model to try to predict the store, like what happens on the market stock-wise uh, just by uh, analyzing the news, right? And so this is something that, was a little bit different from what I used to do, but like uh, I quickly realized that I had the coding skills, like the statistical models were not widely different from what I've known before. And so uh, this is where I started like being introduced to like, a, you know, like a machine learning in the industry. I mean, I had been lucky at the same time that I used to do a little bit of machine learning as a, as a particle physicist as well. For example, I was on one of the first physicists to use a, um, a deep learning model. I think that was like six layers to try to predict noise in in our data. But like, uh, I mean, so yeah, I mean, it just turned out to be like a, a good opportunity for me to like uh, uh, extend my machine learning skill set to NLP. I see. Yeah, and it's insight of some of analysis and then programming skill you pick up from your physics background lends itself very well into some of the later career data essential trajectory that you pursue later on. Right. You know, after you spend a couple of years at Quan Lab. You moved to the Bay Area and then you work for two startups, Yumi and Ayashdi. I believe this is also the time when you sort of make the change from IC role to manage your role because you, you actually have the responsibility to grow and manage some of the early stage data science team at both of these places. Can you share any anecdotes behind the transition and I guess like what method change you had to make? No, so I mean, so uh, Yumi was an interesting experience, right? I mean, so basically, like when I started like, going back to like my my uh, last few months at Quant Lab, I was like, I really like working with like you know like uh, more sophisticated models. Like uh, typically, like in finance, you work a lot with uh, uh you know like uh, black shoe equations, like uh, time series, etc. I, I sort of felt that there wasn't a lot of opportunity to create in something different, something new. So it was, it was a lot of like applying the same laws, right? Enough of uh, uh, market motion, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I eventually like started looking and this is where data science started becoming popular, right? I mean, so it's like a, I knew Silicon Valley from my PhD days. I started realizing that the big tech companies were starting to put more importance on uh, their data initiatives, right? And so Yumi was basically like a, some sort of a point of entry. What I liked about them was that they were starting from scratch, right? I mean, so after my time at, uh, at Point Lab, I was really like trying to look for a place where I can do things from the beginning, right? And so like figure out like, what are we going to build? Like build my own models, like sort of like lead the initiative. And so one, one funny anecdote was this. So basically like uh, when I accepted the job, right? I mean, so I actually had several other opportunities in larger companies, which actually like were paying a little bit better, et cetera. And probably, you know, like, uh, like with some of the large companies out there, right? I mean, the, probably have looked better at first on my resume. And I decided to go to Yumi because they just had acquired a company. And uh, the person who had been the, the CEO of this company, John Wainwright, was actually a very well-known uh, man in technology. And he was to lead the data science machine learning team there. So I was going to be his first hire, right? I mean, and so uh, I was super excited because that's actually the person who, uh, like uh, coincidentally, like a uh, fun fact that uh, he was the first customer of Amazon. 
<laughs> so he, he bought the very first book at Amazon. So you can imagine like a, an innovator in, in spirit, right? He was basically like uh, behind all of the technologies that you, we use today, like, uh, for example, the, the, the Sims game, right? And so the, the ability like to, to see things in 3D, in video games and uh, in, uh, you know, like construction software, et cetera, et cetera. He single-handedly like basically like created this technology, right? And so... For me, the opportunity to work with this person was more than any like potential salary or whatever benefits I could have gotten elsewhere, right? And so, uh, being from abroad, right? I mean, I had to go through like a you know like visa procedures to basically like get my get my H1B back in the days, right? Or I'll get that transferred. By the time I joined Yumi, that person had resigned, <laughs> and so I ended up in this weird situation where okay, I don't know what I'm doing. Like you know, like I I haven't done this before. There is nobody to lead the team. I don't know exactly what the company wants me to build. I end up in the situation where I was forced into almost like a managerial position and making like pretty like a high stake decisions for the company when I barely knew about data science myself, right? And, and very quickly, I realized I actually enjoyed this a lot and I turned out to be like a pretty efficient in terms of like a communicating with other teams, etc. So I was like a, probably one of the earliest people on the market to realize that uh, it's not always smooth sailing when you work with an engineering team, you need to find the right way to talk to them, that data science is a very different discipline than engineering, for instance, right? And, uh, and yeah, and so I, I, I started like realizing that, you know, like what I really think I'm good at is basically like more data strategy than building models, right? The next decisions in my career were a lot about like, I need to find this place where somebody's going to trust me with an actual team, right? I mean, it's unfortunately what happened for me at Yumi is like, uh, they gave me a lot of the responsibilities uh, that a manager has, but they, they didn't really give me like the budget that was going with it because I don't think they could afford it, right? It, it took a little bit of time for me to eventually like, like uh, you know, like get somebody to trust me to like, uh, look, I know what I'm doing. And sometimes like those companies, you know, like uh, that's still a problem nowadays where uh, you have a company that wants to do something with AI or data science and they don't uh, they don't really know what it is. And sometimes what they think they need or what they think they want is not necessarily what's the wisest for the company. So, uh, I mean, one of the things I learned back in these days is like, uh, if it's not the right place for you, you shouldn't be afraid to move, right? I mean, so basically, like, uh, I know a lot of people see this as like, you should stick around at the company for longer or whatever. But like, uh, for me, it was really like a, uh, never lose track of what I thought I needed to develop my career. And if you're not with the right people, you're not in the right circumstances. And sometimes it's not the fault of anyone, right? I mean, it's not like a necessarily that you don't like your manager, you have a bad manager, the company is not good. It's just like if the opportunity is not here, you shouldn't be afraid to make the decisions that are necessary for you to grow. Yeah, and it sounds like from, from that experience, like building from scratch, you, you can definitely step into the shoes of like this startup are trying to do the same thing and, and advise them on those stretch decision. It's, it sounds like from even from that mishap, like you know, like a potential manager just leaving before you left, you took on all, all this responsibility and it turned out to be a, a fantastic learning opportunity. Right? And so after spending two years at, at those company, you became a senior data science manager of the search team at Walmart Labs, where you managed the uh, matrix measurement insights team and mm-hmm. uh, the store search team. Would you mind going over this team structure and sort of the type of data science initiative that uh, they were responsible for? No, so, so this this was basically like a, a team that we created entirely from scratch, right? And so when I joined Walmart, I joined as an IC originally, right? And so basically like as a, as a principal data scientist. 
I eventually, I, I kind of like going back to like my previous, you know, like, uh, you know, like what I was saying before is like, maybe I would function better in a large company, who knows, right? I mean, basically like I believe like uh, the sort of muscle I wanted to like exercise a little bit more was more, you know, like uh, trying to plug uh, like a large scale initiative or whatever. So I thought that was going to happen easier in, in a big company and it did, right? I mean, so basically like what this specific team was about is, you know, like that was the, the time in the market where you had data scientists, usually a data science team would be made of people with a PhD, right? And trying to do research on models, but usually many companies were struggling to convert like those those models into something that actually makes money, right? I mean, so for example, uh, you know, like uh, th- th- there is a difference between like a, building a recommendation uh, system on the paper or even in the Jupyter notebook and make that function at scale so that uh, it actually recommends the right items for people shopping on walmart.com, right? Something that I actually realized very early was a problem is that there was no communication in such a large company between the business side of things and the research, right? I mean, so the, the data scientists like were completely cut off of like a what are we trying to achieve? Even when you think about a recommendation engine, right? I mean, what are you trying to improve? Are you trying to improve like lifetime customer value is something different than getting more money in the short term, right? I mean, so, and in order to do a good job as a data scientist, you need to understand what the people above, right? I mean, the C-suite actually wants to achieve, right? And so this metrics and measurement team was sort of like uh, trying to respond to this is basically like, trying to talk to everybody involved, like all the stakeholders, the different teams, and uh, try to identify like ways to measure success for all of these different teams, find proxies for these different measurements, right? How can we measure this? How can we keep track of this? How can we communicate whether we're moving the needle for them, right? Because what you have to keep in mind is basically a company that starts a machine learning team wants to see a return on investment, right? I mean, so if you're here, you're building beautiful models, but it's not helping people, there is a chance they're gonna they're gonna lay, lay everybody off and that happens all the time, right? And so basically like a really critical for, for people to have this sort of initiatives, right? And so um, we were sort of like managing like measurements across things. And that would include like a traditional ways of measuring the success of a search engine, for example, right? Which would be like a, a click through, like basically like a, push to cart sort of uh, you know like probabilities etc cetera, etc cetera. but also like basically like uh, increasing number of customers number of visits the size of the, the inventory that the company should hold like you have the supply chain side of things etc i think even today like uh, i even see like walmart as being like really an innovator in this space right because you have so many companies that nail it when it comes to building a beautiful autonomous driving model, for example, nobody knows what's really like the purpose of this, right? Why are you building autonomous driving? Are you building autonomous driving to make people safer, to save people's time, to reduce, you know, like uh, car usage and so forth and so on. There are many different reasons, right? For me, it's just like, it's never too early for anyone who wants to enter data to understand this, that data is at the service of the business, right? I mean, the reason why companies invest in big data initiatives is basically like they want to sell more, to sell more products, attract more people, make things safer, right? And if you don't keep in mind that 
there is a business goal at the end of the day, you're going to fail, right? But like, so going back to Walmart, it was really, really an interesting experience for me because I almost became like the, you know, like machine learning product manager talking to everyone and trying to make everybody happy and try to like consolidate the deliverables and the goals that everybody had across like a, my part of the organization, right? I see. I guess you already touched on a lot of those parts, but like you emphasize the important of you know, the data should be about business. And at the time, you know, most data science organizations were not built properly to reflect that, right? Can you maybe give some stories or any relevant anecdote that can led to such a realization? I'll tell you this, right? I mean, so basically, like I think a lot of my personal story and that initiative in particular, right? I mean, as I explained, when I started the, the, the team, right, I was like, basically, what do we want to capture, et cetera? I quickly realized that ROI was important and I became obsessed with it, right? I mean, and so basically like something that's very, very important to understand, like generally speaking, right, is, I mean, I kind of touched on that earlier already, right? I mean, basically like a data science for the sake of playing with data is not going to go anywhere. And unfortunately, right, I mean, there are lots of organizations and even lots of like machine learning people are just like, I, you know, like I want to work with the deep learning model and so forth and so on, right? And so one of the critical like happenings when I was at Walmart that sort of like changed my vision and like basically almost like my understanding of my own purpose, right, was when I was at Walmart, uh, the acquisition of Jet.com happened, right? And so there was a big, big acquisition of like another e-commerce company, Jet.com, for for a lot of money. The interesting story was basically like the founder of Jet.com was the founder of another startup a few years earlier called Diapers.com, which had been acquired by Amazon. And so Walmart was really not happy about this. So basically like a... Uh, when Mark Lohr, the founder of this company, right, uh, started Jet.com, like uh, Walmart's, like we, we need to get this company, right? Because this person not only knows how to build a, an e-commerce business, but he also knows the secret of Jeff Bezos, right? I mean, on how, how he's, he scales like uh, Amazon and so forth and so on, right? I mean, so when that acquisition happened, uh, Mark Lohr became the CEO of Walmart US, including stores, right? I mean, so not just the e-commerce side of things, right? I mean, so... Uh, and that person, I think really highly of as a, as a business person, but he's not a technologist, right? I mean, so lots of problems happen in my department in particular, where we started seeing drops in budgets for uh, lots of things, including data storage, compute, you know, like uh, servers and data labeling, data preparation, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, as part of this reorganization, I started taking on more responsibilities. And so... I was put in charge of the team that would basically strategize on which data to annotate for search relevance. And so this is critical because it don't, you don't have the right data to train your search engine on or to validate your search engine on. Uh, it's not going to look good, right? And it's not going to give you the results that you want. It's like any model, if your data is it's garbage in, garbage out, right? Very suddenly, like Mark Lohr, wanting to compete with Jeff Bezos, wanted to see like a an increase in the number of, I, I think it was a factor of 20, right? It's like, we need to sell 20 times more items online than we are today, which to me means 20 times more data, right? At the same time, the budget we had for data labeling got squished, right? I mean, by, by a factor of two or three, right? I, I was in this one situation where now we have to annotate 20 times more data with half of the budget or a third of the budget. And so I didn't really know how to do this, right? And so I don't know if you're, you're, if uh, people like uh, listening to this know what a, a AI winter is, right? But then the AI winter, it's a period where even though we've made a lot of progress from a technical perspective, the market drops AI, right? I mean, because something's missing, right? And so in the past, we've had AI winters because 
even though we knew the technology, we did not have the proper hardware, right? So I was almost seeing this disaster happening again, that basically like, we are gonna have an AI winter because like a lack of budget, right? Or the lack of ability from the data community to basically prove that doing data science, doing machine learning could bring money to an organization, right? I like, that's, that's why I say like, I really became like obsessed on ROI. So I became like, uh, even people on my team, I would basically like uh, uh, try to encourage people to use less data than necessary. I basically started building like a smart selection engines based on the, this concept of active learning, which actually we can talk more about afterwards. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really started focusing more and more on trying to make things like that. Uh, a little bit more efficient because I, I think like the way we started data science and machine learning like 10 years ago is is nowhere near efficient or as efficient as it should be. Yeah, thanks for sharing those leadership story and, and I think it's fascinating here. Different acquisition led to totally different um, trajectory of resource allocation, right? We talk about like some of the more technical things around labeling in a bit, but I believe this is a time when you start like giving a lot of industry talk during your time at Walmart. One of your first ones is, is MLCon 2016 core review analysis. How did that opportunity come about? Yeah, no, so I so that was completely opportunistic. So I will even say like in my prior positions, right? I mean, at UMI and IASD, I was actually very frustrated because I came from academia, right? I mean, I was speaking all the time. I'm not, I'm not gonna say this is something I enjoyed, but this is something I perceived as being like a, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to build a network, to influence the market, etc. Right? And when I went into the industry, one of the heartbreaks was, will I ever have the same opportunities again, right? I mean, to be a, a thought leader, right? I mean, to some extent, right? And so this is a, this is something I really, really missed at my times and, you know, like, uh, in those previous companies, right? And then, I mean, suddenly my boss is looking for somebody to give this talk at a uh, uh, MLConf, which is basically one of the largest like uh, uh, machine learning conferences, right? And so it's like, uh, why don't you go, right? And so it's like, yeah, why don't I go, <laughs> right? I mean, so I got my lucky break, right? And so basically, like, given that I had experience as a speaker, you know, like I think, uh, you know, like it went well, and so uh, from that point on, my organization started trusting me to give uh, to give talks, right? And so. I actually, I, I'm sort of like, a, I mean, you know, like I shouldn't say this now, but like I'm sort of camera shy. I don't necessarily enjoy like, you know, like being in front of a lot of people, etc. But that's definitely a very unique way to evangelize, right? I mean, to try to convince people of, you know, like changing things, right? So going back to, you know, like uh, my sense that we are on the wrong path. People are doing data science inefficiently and we are going to face the next AI winter if nobody does anything about this, right? And it's like, uh, yeah, I will ramp up my presence on the market. I'll talk about this problem. And so, I mean, at the, like, you know, like it was sort of a play of like, I want to represent my company, but I also want to, you know, like express my own views, right? I mean, on the, uh, in front of the market. So, I mean, uh, it became like easier and easier as, uh, you know, like I had like a, higher ranking, like uh, leadership opportunities or positions in different companies. I see. Let's discuss like, you know, uh, one of the topic that you've been focused on a lot over the years, which is collective learning. You brought up that for the first time um, in the talk or natural intelligence, the human factor in the mouth back in 2018. So what sparked your interest in active learning? And uh, furthermore, what are some of the existing challenges of making active learning work for real world ML systems? So just like to give a quick introduction about active learning for those who don't know, right? I mean, so 
the traditional way of creating a machine learning model is what people supervise machine learning, right? And so the, the idea of supervises, you have a data set which you acquire somehow, you annotate this data set, you use this, you basically like force this data set into your model. What you get is what you get, right? My active learning is basically like a subpart or specialized way of doing semi-supervised machine learning. So semi-supervised means you will work with some annotated data and some unannotated data, right? I mean, so basically, if you have a million records, you might have 50% that's uh, annotated, the rest that's not, right? What active learning is about is basically you try to prioritize strategically the data by going back and forth between like training and inference. So basically what you do is like you take a small set of data, you annotate this data, you train your model with this, and then you try to see how the where the model stands, right? I mean, so you try to like stop, think about like what do I need to focus on next, right? And so it's it's literally it's called active learning because it's like active learning for children, right? I mean, you don't like you know like there is the belief that sure you can give the entire curriculum for a child and just hope they're gonna learn the maximum out of this, or you can say I'm gonna listen to the feedback of that child and uh, where are you struggling? How can I help you? Did you like this book? Did you feel that this book helped you learn? And so active learning does this in a pretty clever way where. Because it's normally designed to help people reduce on their labeling costs, you cannot say, oops, my model doesn't understand cats because you don't know where the cats are because the rest of your data is unlabeled, right? So what you do instead is like you try to analyze the feelings of the model or the level. Like you can, you can look, for example, a very popular way of doing this is to look at some measurement of uncertainty of the model. So you train with a little bit of data. And then you run predictions or inferences on the rest of the data set, which is not labeled yet. It's not really a validation step because you don't know if the prediction is right or not, right? Because you don't have the ground truth. But you can say, it seems that the model is ridiculously sure that it made the right prediction on this, right? I mean, so probably I don't need to focus on that data, right? And so basically, it's like a, a clever way to keep going by, right? Now, uh, that's something that I started using at Walmart, right? Because going back to our, like, a ridiculously small labeling budget, like, we had to find ways to make things work, right? I also realized that one of the big problems with regular active learning is that it it needs to be tuned, right? I mean, there isn't a single way of doing this where you can say, this is how you pick the next batch of data, right? I mean, so active learning is actually the principle of doing things in batches, right? Or like in loops, but people still don't know quite yet how the smart picking or the smart selection should happen, right? Mm -hmm. And so in fact, now like like the regular active learning is a rules-based way of making the decision, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I I see a lot of analogy with active learning today that I see with uh, deep learning 10 years ago, because so when I started my career, deep learning was sort of like becoming popular, but not quite yet. And so you had part of the market that was like, Ooh, this is amazing. And the other part was like, uh, this is a black box, a box, I don't want to use it. But you had a lot of people giving it a try and it wouldn't work, right? I mean, so they would go back and they would say, this, this stuff is not working, I'm giving up, right? And so the reason why it wouldn't work, and we know that today, right? It's not that deep learning doesn't work, deep learning does work, right? But it requires a lot of care and a lot of expertise to do the tuning, right? Right. I mean, so to choose the right number of epochs, number of layers, right? I mean, number of neurons, batch, batch sizes, et cetera, right? And uh, if you don't do that properly, you can fail miserably, right? I mean, so the same thing happens with active learning that 
if you don't, if you have the wrong querying strategy, which is like picking the next batch, you can end in a situation where your model is way worse than it would have been with the entire data set, which you don't want to, to see happen, right? I mean, and so, so, I mean, we're living in exciting times, obviously, from a technology perspective, because we start seeing a lot, a lot more research. Another challenge of active learning is that the regular active learning is actually very compute greedy, right? I mean, so it helps you save on labeling costs, but because you need to retrain on a regular basis, uh, every time you restart from scratch, right? I mean, so it, it basically means that the, the relationship in terms of like a amount of data to compute is in N squared, right? It's, it's a trade-off, right? I mean, so you have to see whether it makes sense to like uh, waste compute for the sake of saving labels, right? which makes sense in an industry where labeling is very expensive, like medical imagery, for instance, or like legal tech, et cetera. But it's not always the case, right? I mean, so one of the things that we do today at Alecto is basically find compute saving or kind of like a, you know, like cost-effective active learning strategies, essentially. Yeah, thanks for sharing those very, very practical challenges. And uh, I'll be sure to include all the talks and blog posts that you did on the show notes so people can have a chance to take a look and see more of the description of this methodology. And we're definitely going to touch on active learning a little bit later on when we're discussing uh, Alectio. But uh, let's go back you know, to your career. So after about like one and a half years at Walmart Labs, you uh, became the chief data scientist at Atlassian. And there you grew the search and smash team of scientists and engineers from three to 17 people in less than six months across three locations. What were some of the tactics that you used to scale that team rapidly? That's a heavy question you're asking me, right? It's like the, 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 the short answer is like, there isn't a single way of doing this, obviously, but it's like, it's more than just finding the right talent, right? It's also finding the right people that have the skill set of like, a, I mean, you can imagine that there is a lot of similarity, like even though like Atlassian is a large company or like uh, obviously not as large as, as Walmart, but building a team like this is basically like an intrapreneurship, right? I mean, so it's like uh, the profile of the people you want to help you are, are basically the type of people you, you would want to hire for a startup, right? I mean, so it's, I mean, uh, obviously like you want people with the, the, the right, you know, like diploma, understands the math, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one of the things that I think I did quite differently from other teams is basically that I really see that, you know, like building a machine learning team is not just about hiring people who can build a model, right? And so very early on, as like, uh, you know, like I hired the first few people, I was like, okay, you, you can build a model. Let's go ask for the data, right? And so I would go talk to the conference team, the JIRA team, and then uh, like, uh, what do you mean the data, right? I mean, and so, uh, of course, they had data, but then we realized that we didn't have a centralized place for our team to basically work with this. So in the Atlassian landscape, we were actually part of the, what we call the platform department. So the platform department basically means that whatever machine learning algorithms we're going to build were supposed to be like applied to the different algorithms, right? I mean, so basically we're trying to do that in a product agnostic way, right? I mean, so you have some organizations uh, where all of the data scientists and machine learning scientists live in the same or work together. And then you have like, Walmart was like the second type, right? You have like a, so some organizations where you do have data scientists a little bit across the organization, right? In an effort to be closer to the business, right? I mean, so in that case, I kind of went back to like uh, the way I was doing things like at, uh, at Walmart, for instance, like going to talk to those teams, what do you need? What kind of data do you have? And then I invested very heavily into data engineering, right? I mean, so basically my, my best advice for somebody putting a, a team together from scratch would not necessarily to be like a 
look for uh, a Stanford PhD where like, uh, you know, like lots of smarts to build like sophisticated models. You need somebody who can prepare the data, like build, like work with like uh, all sorts of databases and basically like uh, build a data lake, even though like data lakes are not as popular as they used to be a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, there is an entire ecosystem around machine learning, right? I mean, so basically you have to think about who can product manage, who can project manage. It takes a special project manager to project manage machine learning, right? Because it's sort of this hybrid of like engineering with research, right? And so the the schedules look a little bit different, right? I mean, the the the, the scales of the project look different, right? And yeah, I mean, so eventually, like out of these people, like more than half were basically engineers rather than than researchers. I see. Yeah, thanks for emphasizing the importance of. No data engineering when when you you know starting out a new team from scratch. Actually, your answers to that question lend itself very well to the next question. So, you start actively evangelizing ML ops as a technical discipline around this time, uh, and actually that was reflected in, in one of your appearance at the Twimo podcast in 2017. What was the state of ML ops at that time, and how do you see ML ops as a discipline evolve in 2021? Even before answering your question, right? I would say this, right? I mean, so this is something super important for everyone, right? If you ask yourself, like you try to be honest with yourself, what does it take to be successful with machine learning as an organization, right? You have three pieces. You have the technology, you have to get the technology right. You have the organization and you have the operations, right? Today, we're good. Like the industry is good at technology, right? I mean, I don't think anybody can deny that, hey, we have like a, we're able to generate data. We're able to create images from scratch with GANs, right? I mean, this is quite amazing when you think about this, right? We're awesome technologists, there's no question, right? The organizational part and the operational part, excuse my English, but we suck at it, right? I mean, and so I think it's very clear across everywhere. I've been in many organizations. In fact, I advise a lot of small and large companies alike, nobody got it right just yet. Right. I mean, so it's basically like a understanding how machine learning people need to interact with other people. What, you know, like a, a data culture means. Right. I mean, how do you get like, you know, like a, people will say like everybody needs to have a basic understanding of how to write SQL queries. Right. I mean, to basically understand the sort of pain that a data scientist is going through, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And uh, unfortunately, we still live in a world where you have C-suites out there. It's like, oh, we have tons of data. We need to do something about this. They don't know how, they don't know what, and they don't realize that these initiatives are usually very expensive and you need to be extremely strategic with it, right? Then the operational side is sort of the same problem, right? It's basically like, I think we were also focused on trying to get a, a MVP, right? A minimum viable product for an autonomous driving uh, vehicle, for example, that it didn't matter how much data had to be stored. It didn't matter like how many people had to be there to deploy that model. Something that a lot of people who are not in autonomous driving don't realize is that when the cars drive about, right? It's almost impossible to transfer all of the data back, right? Because it's just like such a large volume, right? which means that the, the car has to go back to the depot to basically like plug a click cable and basically upload all of the data on the cloud, right? And all of this operational side is just like, we've brute forced it just to get MVPs everywhere, right? And we've proven these MVPs are like 
cool technologies, right? I mean, you have like personal assistants, you have chatbots, you have like lots of cool like technologies for, you know, like facial recognition, security, and so forth and so on, right? The question nobody's really asking is like, is this efficient? Is this too expensive? And uh, what do we do to bring the costs down, right? And so basically it goes back to my original worry, right? I see more and more companies making it from a technology perspective that just like, wow, I created this model. This is amazing. And then the next thing you know, you have like the leader of that company that's like, uh, you made it, congratulations. Unfortunately, I have to cut like the whole budget down because this is costing us like $5 million a year mm-hmm. to keep this in production, right? And uh, I only have a $1 million budget for you guys, right? I mean, so this isn't going to work. I think we cannot win with machine learning if we don't get ML ops right, right? I mean, so the good news is that we've seen like over the last 18 months, like a lot of like companies, including us, right? I mean, popping up to basically help people automatically deploy models so that you don't need free engineers in the IT department, basically like uh, figure out how to port a bunch of model weights from one computer to the cloud, right? And uh, automatically like monitor the model in production to automatically like prepare data to uh, make data, data labeling easier, more scalable etc right i mean so basically like there's been a lot of progress which is awesome right one of the problems i still see there is that when you think about the machine learning cycle you have like data preparation so getting your data getting your data in the right shape you have model preparation which is what people by default think of when they think about machine learning right and then you have model deployment right and so these are three things that normally you do in this order You've had a lot of investments from the VC community in model creation and model deployment, right? I mean, so in fact, there are tons of companies that can automatically tune the parameters in your model right now, right? You have companies that can uh, use brute force ways to identify what is the best model, right? And so I'm not saying yet that the data scientist job is going to get automated, but it sort of like could go in this direction, right? The one thing that is not operationalized properly just yet is the data preparation piece, right? And so if you ask anyone out there, right, you ask a data scientist, like, where, how do you spend your time? Everybody's going to say, unfortunately, I spend 70% of my time uh, doing feature engineering, cleaning my data, labeling my data, like uh, identifying like the bad records and uh, you know, like uh, doing like uh, the data maintenance of, of, of all sorts, right? And, and people always like, it's almost like they think like, uh, that's it, right? My job is always going to be like a lot of data cleansing, right? So that I can get the pleasure to build a model, right? And so my belief is like, the only reason why this is the case is that there are there is not enough investment and there are not sufficiently enough companies bothered about like data preparation, right? And so data preparation goes beyond data labeling and it goes beyond data storage, right? I mean, so you have companies like uh, like Snowflake, for example, that has done a, a good job at, you know, like basically like data management, right? But getting your data in the right shape is like a, such a complicated problem. And so everybody, everybody's right to spend a lot of time on this. But in order to get operations right, we need to get that piece right first. Thanks for, you know, being extremely comprehensive on all those points. You actually gave a fantastic talk on data prep ops in the recent TumorCon, which I got a chance to watch and check it out. And that's why, you know, definitely excited to kind of see more companies innovating and even more funding from VCs, you know, this landscape, this underserved market, right? 
And so you, you talked a bit about that operational challenge and you kind of briefly alluded to organizational challenges, which you answered as well. And a recurring topic that you have touched on frequently is Agile for data science teams. And basically try to bring up the point that organization that invests in ML, yeah. but not the organizational size of things right will fail. Can you um, elaborate more on the Agile concept for context for the S? Yeah. So, so that's that's also an interesting story. So basically, like going, going back to my Atlassian days, right? I mean, so I think everybody knows that Atlassian is basically like uh, the company that makes like Jira, Confluence, etc. Right? Basically, they do software to help engineering teams. Engineering teams basically like manage their you know like uh, tasks, right? I mean, basically like, the software you would use to like report bugs, identify who's working on it, right? And so all of the Atlassian software is basically like a support base for this concept of agile methodology, right? Which is basically like a, how do you organize machine learning and so on, like engineering teams to go faster, more efficiently to identify who's working on this, right? I mean, so agile is sort of already like a kind of an old concept. It's been around for some time now, right? And so uh, it was essentially a response to the waterfall methodology, which was like, you would plan things to do and then you would do it no matter what. And usually you had delays because you had unforeseen like delays in the project, right? I mean, so the core concept behind Agile is basically like responding to the unexpected, right? I mean, so it means that I was going to code it this way, but it's not going to work. It doesn't scale. I'm going to change this, right? I mean, so it's giving an opportunity to the engineers to change the path, right? You don't change the end goal, right? I mean, the end goal is always to get the same product, right? And so it's it's a brilliant idea for engineering, right? Because it's like responsiveness to problems, reaction, reactivity, right? Now, because Atlassian is Atlassian, they kind of like force all teams to be agile, right? So that includes a research team, that includes a machine learning team, right? And so basically, like I had lots of pressure for me, it's like a we're supposed to show the example of how Agile is supposed to do, you need to implement Agile in your team, right? And so everybody understands Agile for engineering, but people in in research will tell you, I have no idea how long it's going to take me to build my model, right? And uh, it can as easy, like if it works, like I don't have to do a lot of tuning, it might take a week. If not, it might take six months, right? And so it's like basically like this crazy, like a lack of visibility, right? At the same time, like for me, selfishly as a manager, it's like, I think these guys are right. We need something similar to Agile for machine learning, right? And so basically, like, uh, I, I felt like I had to think about this, right? And so little by little, like, so I gave, I gave like uh, talks about this topic, like over and over again. I realized a few important things. It's like, basically, like, um, there isn't why one Agile that works for machine learning, but by helping, for example, researchers to break down their tasks into smaller pieces, you can actually build in a little bit more predict- like a predictability, right? And so basically, like, instead of just thinking about, I'm going to build this model, you can basically force your, you know, your, your machine learning scientists to think about, like, a, think about data collection first, think about validation, think about, like, come up with a list of five models that you think might work for this, right? And so build prototypes for each one of these so that you can eliminate some of these things, right? Another thing that was a very important finding for me is like, 
most people know agile as scrum right i mean so scrum is like you have like one week two weeks three weeks sprints where you decide at the beginning of the sprint you work on this you work on this etc and then you're supposed to be done with your tickets at the end of this period right there are other types of agile for example there is like the the kanban framework the kanban framework is there isn't a specific deadline but you still plan right i mean so basically like you have a specific task it does not necessarily matter if it's going to take one month or two months, but you know who's working on it. Uh, you still meet with other people on a daily basis to basically like identify where you're at, right? And so one of the major findings for me trying to implement this is basically a combination of different agile frameworks is still agile. So mm-hmm. what, what you need to do in the machine learning team is like, you have people working as engineers because you have those data and machine learning engineers, and then you have like the data scientists, right? I mean, the machine learning scientists building the models. Uh, something that was successful for me is like separating these two into different groups with different frameworks. Mm-hmm. And basically like we had a system where when uh, somebody in the research team would come up with the right model, they would sort of like go on, like assist to the other meetings on the other side to assist the engineers and make sure the engineers understood how to implement the model at scale, et cetera, et cetera. That actually was a very agile framework where we responded to to all the requirements of uh, agile and it can be done, it should be done, and it really makes a huge difference in terms of efficiency as well, right? So going back for my original problem, like organizations not being ready for machine learning, like it's like a I wish more people would talk about like the necessity for to, to do planning for researchers as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing that mental framework that you used to, to structure your team at Atlassian. Yeah, that uh, quick feedback cycle between engineering and scientists can, can bring tremendous impact into the effectiveness of the outcome, right? Now, after close to a year with Atlassian, you accept a VP of ML role at Figure 8, which then was a, a startup that offers enterprise-grade labeling solutions to ML teams. What attracted you to join the company at that point? In case you wouldn't know, right? I mean, so figure eight used to be the old Crowdflower, right? I mean, so they were the very first enterprise grade uh, labeling company, right? I mean, so if you go back to my previous job, right? I mean, which was like uh, at Walmart, right? I mean, I suffered a lot from uh, not having enough budget for data labeling, right? And so that stuck with me. I actually felt very, very passionate about that problem in particular, which led to me like uh, investigating, doing more research on active learning, right? I mean, because active learning, again, is like one possible solution to reduce labeling costs, right? So even during my time at Atlassian, right? I mean, I, I, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about how to get the organization right, but I wasn't spending a lot of time on getting the operations right. right? I enjoyed my time at Atlassian, but Atlassian was like, you know, like, you're like not necessarily ready yet for large scale data projects. So at some point it's like, uh, I'm putting this thing together, but our products are, you know, like uh, going to production a lot later. In fact, they just pushed to production recently, like one of the models that we used to work on, like maybe three years ago, right? And so just to give you an idea of like uh, how some projects, how slow certain of these projects can be, right? Let's put it that way. I'm not particularly patient as a person, right? I mean, so that, that was kind of like very frustrating for me. So... I got like, I wasn't looking for a job, but Figure8 reached out to me saying that, hey, we're looking for smarter ways of doing labeling, right? I mean, so basically like the idea was that there was sort of an effort in the labeling space where 
even today, most of the labeling is done manually, right? I mean, so it means that for autonomous driving, you still have people draw bounding boxes around cars, right? I mean, to create like a annotations for people to train sophisticated models on, right? I thought like Figure8 was thinking about it the right way, that basically like with data sets becoming ever larger, there needs to be a machine learning component to it, right? I mean, so they were basically like a bringing in machine learning as one potential way to automate at least partially the, the labeling process, right? I mean, of their, that they would work on for their customers, right? I mean, so I really feel like somebody needs to do something about this. And so this is where like my fundamental thesis, right? Is like, as, and this is really important for what we do now, right? Those companies, even today, labeling companies are trying to find ways to scale up and ramp up their labeling capabilities. My belief is that big data is great because you can become pickier, right? And so the fact that our data sets become ever larger uh, doesn't mean you need to use all of it, right? I mean, and so we got used to using all of the data we had because 10 years ago, usually there wasn't enough data for us to work with, right? I mean, so you would just like grab whatever you had and work with it, right? I actually like try to like you know, like uh, advertise to figure it that basically, did you know that I actually believe that in many circumstances, you might need less data that you need, right? Uh, mm -hmm. that, that you might imagine, right? I mean, so one way to like help your customer, like uh, do things more efficiently is not to scale up labeling, but to scale down data, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, they were, they were like, so the executive team was really interested in this idea, but I think the board was not on board because of course we're a labeling company, right? I mean, it's sort of like a change in, uh, in perspective, right? I mean, it's a change in the business model, right? Because for labeling companies, you make money, money based on the volume of data that you, that you annotate, right? I mean, so regardless, I thought that, you know, like I didn't necessarily, like I, I thought like I could change the world, right? I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna join this company and change the perspective on data, et cetera, right? What happened really quickly is like, uh, I mean, figure eight was already like nine, nine years old when I joined, right? I mean, so they received acquisition offers pretty quickly, right? Which meant to me that it was way too late for me to pivot the company from a hardcore labeling company to a data curation company, which is basically what we do now, right? I mean, and so regardless of that, I really enjoyed my time there because I learned a ton about, you know, like the labeling space, etc. So it's like, a, I strongly believe that, you know, like in a career, sometimes you take jobs that don't seem to make sense, but I believe in certain Deputy, right? I mean, it's just like a, there, there is a reason I can get something good out of this. And so I, I've been lucky in my life that every single time I can make sense of the decisions that a few years prior seemed to be bad decisions, right? Or things I didn't have a choice to do, right? Yeah, I see. That sounds like your briefly at figure eight where it really allows you to build up the domain knowledge about the space, which led to, you know, the inception of your current company, Electio. So you've been the father and CEO of Electio since January 2019. And the company mission is to help companies to do ML more efficiently with less data and also help the world do ML more sustainably by reducing the industry carbon footprint. Throughout the conversation, you, you talk about this problem and you actually laid out that thesis in one of the talk on the limitation of big data a couple of years earlier while you still at Walmart. Yeah, can you um, talk a little bit about uh, Electio's mission and also the role of uh, sustainability play in ML progress in the future? No, so one thing that's incredibly, like, uh, you know, like uh, that's that's not usually something you hear from an entrepreneur. But I consider myself like a reluctant entrepreneur. I never wanted to start my own company. So I was I was basically like I was really hoping that 
my original thesis that basically like we should stop like believing that big data is you know like the solution to building better machine learning models or the only solution to building better machine learning models right i was really hoping i would make this work at other companies right i mean to some extent it's like i try to like uh, evangelize like figure eight etc etc and eventually i realized look nobody's doing this it's a huge problem it's not gonna get any better and we are operating in a market where people don't like less is more is popular in society but not so much in big data right i mean and so for me i look at big data as like we all love big data. Look, I enjoy working with large data set as well, because again, like you can be picky with this, right? But like, there is no question that big data unleashed real opportunities in machine learning, right? We wouldn't have any of the, the AI technologies we have today if we didn't ramp up our ability to collect and store more data, right? But now we're sort of in the reverse problem, right? Where there is so much data that data is almost like like eating us alive to some extent, right? I mean, I think it's like a, when big data was in its infancy, it's like, this is something that's helpful. It's cute, right? I mean, it's just like, now I have enough data to do things. And now we're dealing like with the post-teenage phase of big data where, you know, like it's becoming this huge thing that nobody really knows how to deal with. And so the market solution up to now has been to be like a take the brute force approach, right? We'll be the build bigger data centers, we'll build like faster machines, etc., to deal with this data, right? To me, this isn't the wise way to look at this. But from an economic perspective, right, you can easily understand why some large companies have an incentive to make everybody believe that big data is necessary mm-hmm. to build good models, right? Because this is like literally there, the more data, the more money they're going to make, right? And so uh, this is becoming a problem for many reasons, right? I mean, so when you talk about like sustainability of machine learning, right? I think of sustainability in the green side of things, right? It's good for the environment to reduce the amount of data because it means like less data centers, less electricity being used for servers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also sustainability in terms of like sustaining those initiatives, right? In those different companies out there, right? For me, it's like we're reaching the point where People, you know, like it's almost like for a company that's like, I invested $5 million to get like a chatbot for my users, etc. We made it. And now, so what now, right? What now? This is too expensive. This is incredibly complicated to keep in production and so forth and so on, right? And so again, like a lot of the problem is coming from the scale of data, which we need to tame. I'm looking at big data as something that, that needs to be tamed. Right. And I, I think it's a very important perspective because people don't realize that there is like a huge amount of carbon dioxide that's getting like originated from data centers. I think the statistics say that like 2024, 2025, there is like the five and six percent of the carbon uh, emissions that will come from data centers. When you think about this, it's almost like the big data industry is the only industry that doesn't make a conscious effort to reduce this. Right. Because the clothing industry the agriculture industry, etc. All of these industries are way larger polluters, but they're working on trying to diminish those things, right? And I think for us working with big data, it's like we don't even have consciousness just yet, right? I mean, so everything that we do now, right, is like really based on the ideas like you have this huge data set, right? But the reality is like any data set is made of useful, useless, and harmful data, right? Mm-hmm. The useful data is what you want, right? This is where you have the right information that truly really helps your model, right? 
the useless data is like by definition, right? It's not good, it's not bad. It's just gonna make you waste a lot of time and a lot of money, right? And so typically this is a big chunk of your data set. And the harmful data is like what we call the garbage in garbage in garbage out, right? I mean, so it's the worst piece because it's the piece where you store it, you use it, you train your model with it. It's, it's generating, it's wasting your time, it's generating pollution, right? And it's making your model worse, right? I mean, on top of everything else, right? For me, the right way of thinking about machine learning, so machine learning 2.0, right, is to think about, okay, now that I have this huge chunk of data, now that I can afford to be a little bit more like demanding of the quality of my data, like how do I do this, right? The other thing that I feel is important is like people, people are getting the concept of quality. I think everybody agrees that you need quality data to build a model. There's no question about that, right? The thing is like you have a lot of quality data, which is not useful, right? So I'm trying to shift the conversation from data quality to data value, right? Mm. And value depends on the use case, right? And so this is an incredible challenge, right? Because it means that data that's useful for model A might not be useful for model B, right? I mean, so it means that you need to do data management in the context of what you're trying to do with it. And none of the data management companies are doing this today, right? I mean, so this is really the, the Alexio's mission, right? And so to, mm-hmm. to make people like tame down the data and work, like come back to sanity to some extent. <laughs> yeah, and you, you also write like a very comprehensive blog post on Alexio's blog. It, I think you said like today, big data die, I think that's the name of the title, but I will be sure you include that in the show notes so people can, can read, that, read that as well. And as we, you know, kind of talking about, you know, some of the blog posts on Alectio, recently you wrote a four-part blog series about responsible AI that calls out the need to fight bias, increase accessibility, and create more opportunities in AI. So could you mind delivering some of the key points from this series? For sure. I think we discussed the sustainability, like the environmental part, right? I mean, so basically like AI is not going anywhere, right? So we're going to have like more and more implications, et cetera, right? I and mean, hopefully we don't see another AI winter, right? But we need to be extremely careful with it, right? I mean, so we all know that, you know, like some people dread that they're gonna lose their job when everything is automated, et cetera. But so the environmental part is important, right? So you don't want to like advance technology and destroy the planet, right? I mean, so and it's, it's not necessarily something that people think about, right? You want to make sure that AI is fair for the consumers, right? I mean, so one of the, the parts of the series is actually discussing, and basically I'm sure people have examples of like a facial recognition uh, software not working as well for dark-skinned people, for instance, right? I mean, so basically like delivering fair AI means like everybody has a access to the same technologies and can benefit from the technology the same way, right? You have software and legal tech that makes decisions in terms of like, you know, like basically acts as a judge, right? Should this person go to uh, go to jail, right? I mean, and so basically like uh, if this is not fair, it's a disaster for the community, right? I mean, so you want AI to become like the solution to the unfair society we live in to some extent, right? I mean, this is what I call like a responsible AI, right? I mean, so like making sure like Everybody can access it. Everybody can use it. Everybody can work with it, right? One of the things that really, really scares me a lot with the progress in AI is as you advance AI, obviously there's going to be some jobs, blue collar jobs, right? That are going to start disappearing, right? I mean, because we can automate these things, right? It's not a bad thing, right? Because you do want people to basically move on to like a, you know, like different jobs, right? It's just basically like a, it's, it's, it's an advancement for society if people don't have to do dangerous jobs anymore, right? But the problem I see in today's society is that 
if we continue down the same path, the richer will become richer and the poorer people are going to become poor, right? I mean, so an, an incredible example of this is data labeling, right? Because as I said earlier, when a rich startup or a large company in Silicon Valley like, needs to build a model, they need to get their data annotated, right? They will typically like rely on annotation or labeling companies that rely on actual people to do that job. And most of them are based in Africa, in Madagascar, in the Philippines, in Indonesia, etc. And uh, I mean, you have like uh, unscrupulous like labeling companies as well out there, right? I mean, that are basically going to take like larger chunk of the money and not pay these people safe, like uh, fairly, right? I mean, so it's not typical, but there have been cases where people were actually like almost put into slavery positions, right? Where basically like they were forced to do annotations without getting a proper salary or whatever, right? I mean, so it should like AI should be an opportunity for everyone. Everybody should basically like there is a huge opportunity actually to have those people in poorer countries benefit from the AI economy by making money out of data labeling. That's great, right? I mean, it's sort of like it definitely. Uh, it's definitely a better job. It pays better than, for example, like being in the fields for you know, like under a scorching sun for like uh, 16 hours a day. I don't know how much, uh, how long, right? So it, it's an advancement, but like you need to make sure that you are not going to increase like uh, social disparities because of AI, right? And so I truly like, I'm not one of those people who believe that AI is going to steal jobs, but AI is definitely going to shift jobs, right? And shift the market and the jobs we're going to see 10 years from now are going to be very different from the jobs from today, right? We need to make sure that the situation at that point will be not worse than it is today at the very least, if not much better, right? And so I really, like, for example, like, I have a personal, like, a, you know, like a really, like, I, I care a lot about this data labeling problem because I truly believe that there is an opportunity for people from third world country to make money out of AI by, by this opportunity in particular. And then it, it, it shouldn't be up to the, I think there should be regulations in terms of how much they're making, how much they're being paid for this sort of thing. So, yeah, thanks for sharing those uh, very important messages. So let's take off your engineering hat and put on your father hat. Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What were some of the hurdles that you jumped through to find those early customers? No, so, I mean, this is not specific to what we do, but so I, I will say this, right? We're, we are sort of like a category builder, right? I mean, and so basically like my problem was like, when I started Electro, right? I mean, you can imagine in the first few months that was just me, right? And so I, I would try to like organize trade shows on my own, etc. And so I would tell people, did you know that you could build the same model with less data? People would laugh in my face, right? I mean, because we really live in an age where everybody has been taught by people in academia, by their friends, their bosses, that more is better, right? I mean, you're only going to get like a better models with more data. So like for me in particular, given what we're doing, there was a lot of education, right? And so it's, there are lots of challenges with like people not trusting an early stage company, right? I mean, that's, you know, like, how can you do that better than somebody else? That was not necessarily the problem because nobody was doing what we we're doing, right? I mean, so for, for us, it was more like, this is not possible to be done or whatever. The second challenge was eventually when people started believing me, I heard a lot of like, if this could be done, I think somebody else would have done it, right? Which you can interpret in different ways, right? You can interpret like, why is nobody else doing this, right? And so the answer to that is like, look, it's it's very lucrative for the markets to make people believe that you need infinitely large data sets as we discussed earlier, right? The other way to interpret this is like, a, 
do you mean that I cannot do this? Like, I mean, I don't know if you're referring to my gender, right? I mean, or not, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always fun at the beginning to, you know, like uh, sort of push your limits of like in terms of how you can uh, respond to the objections of those people, right? <laughs> yeah, I see. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup father. What were some of the valuable lessons that you learned to attract the right people who are excited about yeah. Alectio's mission? So we are incredibly lucky because like, so when you think about what we do, right, we build essentially engines to like identify useful data in large data sets contextually to a model, right? This is a meta learning problem, right? I mean, so essentially you could see Alectio as being a meta learning platform, right? Mm -hmm. It's incredibly easy to attract talent, right? Because I would even say like we are the one true data science company with an emphasis on the science, right? Because we're really like giving people the opportunity of like not just build a model, but understand why this model works and how this model learns, right? I mean, and so it's, it's like, like as far as I'm concerned, it's the holy grail in machine learning, right? I mean, it's like really like a, it's like such, such an interesting problem to work on, right? Now, I mean, we attract a lot of talent, something that has been like, not like, obviously, like I saw some signs of that problem earlier in my career as well. But oftentimes, the people that are the best suited for the job are not the ones that you might think. So in fact, I've had many, many times like uh, interviewed like people from Ivy Leagues with like very impressive like curriculums. And at the end of the day, the person who got the job had a bachelor for not an Ivy League, right? And so, and, and they did a better job, right? I mean, so I think that should be like a message of hope for lots of people out there, right? I mean, I don't think like, uh, I think more and more hiring managers are realizing that there is what you know, but there is like what you can learn. There is like, a, you know, like a, your your personality, whether you like to push your limits. In fact, like trying to push yourself out of your comfort zone is one of Alectio's values, right? I mean, it's, it's really like a, usually when I hire, I hire more for the ability that someone has to push themselves mm -hmm. and uh, the ability to learn new things. So this is true of any technology jobs, right? I mean, so you're still going to have old school hiring managers, but technology moves so quickly that I think we're past the days where you will hire somebody because they know how to use Kubernetes, right? Because Kubernetes are the, are the hot thing right now, but six months from now or a year from now, we might use something else, right? And so what matters is, uh, you know, like uh, the ability to learn and the ability to learn how to learn faster and to recycle knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so there were countless number of situations where I interviewed people with PhDs and postdocs and they did not do quite this, like they, they did the worst job that somebody was like with a master's or with a, with a bachelor, right? I mean, so it's like a really like anybody looking for a job right now, like should try to like a really like show what they can do, what they can learn and like prove their worth, right? I mean, because that's, a, that's another problem that I see a lot on uh, hiring like young people straight out of college or whatever. It's not so much about what you've done, but what you can do or you can bring to the company that you're going to join that matters. Yeah, thanks for sharing those very valuable insights. And I think during the research for this conversation, I read one of your posts a while back called the cost of hiring over qualified candidates. And you kind of laid out exactly that part about trying to find the people who not fully 100% met the requirement, but they just arrive there like 80, 85%, 90%, and then they have the capacity to expand their competence and meet that. So it seems like, you know, that kind of resonates a lot with your answers that there. 
you wind down a little bit about your conversation. I want to touch some of the key underlying themes reflecting through your whole career journey. You share a lot about like sort of best management practices from how to manage both underperformers and and rockstar to even nurture healthy team cultures. So reflecting on your experience growing in managing early stage data teams, what advice do you think that soon to be managers should ignore? Well, so I mean, I would say like there, I that's that's a good question because so. There are many advice out there, like my general impression of advice in general is that it's very hard to generalize, right? I mean, so you should basically like take advice in your own like uh, situation, right? I mean, so uh, rather than like basically like thinking like, I would say ignore every advice before you think it through, right? And so I think one of the most complicated things in somebody's career and in life in general is finding this right balance between accepting feedback and not taking anything for wrong truth, essentially, right? Because if you are like the kind of person who's like, I know what I'm doing, I don't need your advice, that's bad, right? Because you can take inputs from others, etc. But you have to take everything with a grain of salt, right? I mean, so basically, like, it's it, it's always a challenge to know, like, uh, when you, you hear somebody give you a piece of advice and you think about it and you're like, I don't think this advice is fair or valid in my use case or in my situation. You you have to make sure that you're not just saying that to yourself in order to avoid seeing a problem that you have, right? I mean, somebody telling you like, I don't think you're the right person for this job, right? It's like basically like uh, sometimes people would say like, yeah, okay, I, you know, like I think about it, but you know, like you you don't give give the advice a fair opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always a fine line, right? I mean, you really have to like do some sort of like work on yourself. Like, is this person giving me like, what's what's the intention first of that advice? advice in particular? How is it helpful to me? Does this person understand my situation? Have they gone through for a similar situation and so forth and so on, right? I mean, so yeah, my my answer would be like, take notes of all sorts of advice. Don't take advice for granted by default, right? I mean, because like, I cannot think of one piece of advice that would apply to every single person. Yeah, so finding that right level of abstraction is critical. Finally, you've been a major advocate for the role that women have to play in tech. From my research, you have written a lot of thoughtful content about sort of women in the workplace, from a leading by example to the role of motherhood in general discrimination to some of the challenges that the female manager and even like a, a pyramid of needs for professional women, to name a few. If you can condense your decade of experience navigating the tech industry, what are the top three advice that you would give to female data practitioners in the early phase of their careers? I mean, one of the top challenges and one of the mistakes that I, I failed that over and over again was basically like, I felt like I had to start behaving, like I had to start behaving more like a, like a guy, right? I mean, to basically be successful. So, I mean, examples of that is like, a, I'm not a big, a big beer drinker and I felt my boss was always like inviting me to like happy hours and stuff and usually I don't drink that much and I felt I had to right I mean this sort of thing so it's like you you should like be conscious of like like you shouldn't give up on who you are you are to basically like do your job properly right I mean so what's important is like basically if I'm meant to be a leader right I mean it doesn't matter whether the way I talk to people and so forth and so on like don't need to be the same way that somebody else needs to talk right and so that's sometimes difficult because a lot of people, like when they step into like managerial positions, like to take their boss as a role model to some extent, right? I mean, so basically like it's important to stay yourself, right? And so that's true of 
for everyone, but it's true in particular for women, right? I mean, for me, like if there is like one piece of advice, that's definitely this one, right? I mean, I would almost say like my other pieces of advice would be sort of similar, right? The other advice I have for pretty much anyone, not just for women to, to keep going into, but like keep learning things, right? I mean, it's just like uh, not, not be shy of doing additional trainings and this sort of things. It's like never like you shouldn't shy away from, you know, like uh, I have an opportunity to do something which I'm not good at just yet, right? I mean, so you have to be daring and like, uh, you know, like sometimes like, uh, I mean, again, like going outside of your comfort zone is something that's very important for me. It's very important for our company. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have a third one that's that as important as this too, right? But, so Jennifer, this part of the conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and you can give you know, quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data universe whose work you admire. I will tell you this, right? I mean, so basically like, and you're going to be disappointed by my answer, but it doesn't matter. It's like, for me, like thinking about a role model, what a role model is for me is basically like, it's somebody you want to aspire to be, right? For me, like, like I, w- I aspire to being someone who does something that matters to the world, right? I mean, so basically like, I would say people that I admire outside of the data community would be like people who invented like different things that help people live better, right? I mean, Louis Pasteur, for example, like the like creating like vaccines for people not to die, right? I mean, people like Mother Teresa for basically like helping people or, you know, like helping so many people like who are at risk of dying of hunger and this sort of things, right? I don't think we can say just yet that anyone in data mm-hmm. has done something like this, right? Because probably because we're still early, right? But I cannot name a single person in the data space that can say what I did for the world changed things forever, right? I mean, so we will, I'm sure we will eventually, right? I mean, I'm sure that, you know, like once somebody like gets like a fully functional autonomous driving vehicle and we can say we have X number of people per year who didn't die in a crash thanks to autonomous driving, right? I mean, it would be considered as this, but like it's not there yet, right? I mean, uh, we don't have like standardized, like universal autonomous driving just yet, right? If somebody like comes up with an AI way of predicting or stopping cancer, that they would qualify as that, that, that as well. But I think it's too early yet. Before the age where I would say I would qualify anybody as a role model in data. Yeah, thanks for sharing that yeah, refreshing perspective. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a resilience myself. But I'm also going to have like a, a different answer on this, right? I mean, so I, li- I like reading a lot. I read a lot of technical books, right? I mean, so basically, how do you like start with why by Simon Sinek and, uh, you know, like crossing the chasm we talked about, like early stage adopters, like our products, etc. But those are typically technical books, right? For me, inspiration and like cultivating like resistance, persevering, etc. It comes from inside. I don't want a book or I don't want somebody else to tell me how I should do this, right? And this is something personal, right? I'm not that much into like self-help books and so forth and so on. If there was one book that's not necessarily like exactly like for cultivating like persistence, et cetera, et cetera, one book that I would still recommend like people to read earlier in their career is, is essentially um, a book called The Managing Up. It's a book that's designed for, it's, it's written basically for people to know how to manage up, right? I mean, so basically how to make your boss happy and how to talk to your boss, right? I mean, and so I think 
when you're early stage in your career, you don't realize that your boss is a person, right? And so they have their own like pet like, like uh, their, their pet preferences on how they want things to be delivered, right? They might be more impatient than average. They might have their own personalities, etc. And it's important because like you want this person to help you grow in your career, right? I mean, it's not it's not even like I I, I really like this book because it's not like you should you know like stop to your boss or whatever. It's like how do you communicate? with your boss better so that this person understands what you need, you understand what he or she needs from you and you can work together better. And this has been incredibly helpful for me later on for even talking to customers, for example, right? I mean, even if it's not necessarily your boss, like it brings a perspective on like, how do you understand what this person needs from you? How do you better communicate with people who have a different personality from you, right? And so this is something that to me, like it also goes back to like how come that some brilliant people cannot prove themselves during a job interview, even though they should, right? It's basically because people want to see what you can bring, and uh, there there is like a, there is a skill that I think universities are not uh, cultivating enough is basically this ability of like understanding other people's needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great recommendation. And yeah, I definitely check it out as soon as I can. Lastly, imagine that you could send out a, a single message to all the early stage data uh, practitioners on LinkedIn. What could you convey? No, I mean, for me, like, it's like, it's, it, you know, like, it's pretty similar to what I just said, right? But it's like, really, like, I, there are a ton of talented people out there, right? I mean, and so this is very exciting because talking about like making AI like something that's like the norm in the future, right? We're going in the right direction. I'm always heartbroken to see how many brilliant people fail to show what they can do and to some extent even show that they can deliver after they join the company. I've had like people who are like incredible on the paper, incredibly smart, but they would fail to deliver something of value to their companies, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really important for people to also like basically work on their soft skills, right? I mean, so it's like you can build the best models ever if you cannot align your work and the way that you work to your colleagues and your boss. And if you cannot bring value to your organization, your career is not going to go well, right? I mean, so it's always worth like taking a step back stop working on uh, you know like learning the next cool model or the next cool framework or whatever and think about like uh, what can i do today to be useful to my organization and even when you build a resume you should go in the same direction right i mean in many cases i see people writing resumes where they list their incredible achievements the models that they've built but they don't state enough that this model helped my company save five million dollars Right. And so basically, like, I, w- I would say, like, probably like the most important piece of advice I can give is like data and AI and machine learning. They're a means to an end. The end is not machine learning itself. Right. It's an implementation detail. Right. Basically, like the fact that specific software is using AI to better target candidates or customers or whatever, it's irrelevant to the user. Right. I mean, so. I think people should focus more on what it is that they want to achieve, right? I mean, and so in fact, like uh, sometimes I'm uh, a little bit taken aback by people who say, like, I want to be a data scientist. And you ask them, okay, what sort of like data scientist do you prefer e-commerce? Do you like working with like a medical data, whatever? Oh, I've never thought about this, right? And so basically, like, you should never lose track of the fact that 
lots of us are doing data because we selfishly enjoy working with data, right? But like at the end of the day, we're paid to get something done, right? And so basically like you have to align that with your mission as well. Fabulous. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. So Jennifer, I really enjoy our chat today, learning about your foray from physics to ML, your transition from a zero to manager euro, your journey becoming an accidental entrepreneur, as well as the underlying team that can be conveyed throughout your career, both from a management standpoint, but as well as on from the role as, as a woman playing in tech. And I'll be sure to include everything on the show notes so listeners can have a chance to to take a look and you know learn more about your career and reach out if they're more interested in about this important a message about you know working with, with less data for final applications um i guess last thing is like where can listeners find you on the internet i use linkedin a lot so i mean <laughs> you know usually you should be a message on linkedin or like even on twitter and get back to you pretty quickly <laughs> all right perfect yeah thanks jennifer and i hope you have a great rest of your day thank you well that's the wrap for another episode of datacast Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now. 